You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The story that Betty and Barney told under hypnosis was extraordinary. A tale of alien encounter unlike anything before it. An account so detailed that the story itself seemed to offer possible proof that it was more than a delusion. It began with Barney turning off the highway and onto a rural road. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 3, What's Yellow? Though the Hills abduction experience was the first to become widely known, their supposed case wasn't the first of its kind. About four years before the couple's experience, another possible abduction had taken place on a farm in the Minas Gerais region of Brazil. History professor and host of the Saucer Life podcast, Aaron Gullias. Antonio Villas-Boas in South America in 1957 is out in a field and encounters a, a UFO. And he's taken aboard it, but it's not sort of a, a typical 1950s contactee experience. There are strange-looking people on the craft, and they're, they're human-ish, but they're not human. Um, and there's, there's one figure in particular. A, uh, he, he identifies the figure as female with, with red hair and a, a pale body. And he's taken into a room, and medical tests are performed on him, and he's strapped down, and he's naked. And then he has a sexual encounter with this woman. And the impression we get from the tale that's told to a researcher who then tells it to people from the American organization APRO, who were the first to sort of publish an English language sort of report of this in the late 1950s, is that they were extracting semen, probably, for whatever experimental purpose they had. After the encounter, Villas Boas is disoriented, in pain, he's got a headache, some vision problems, vertigo, all kinds of stuff going on. 
And he tells his story and he finds a researcher and tells him the story. And no matter how many times he tells his story, it remains remarkably consistent. It's not from hypnosis, it's from his conscious memory of what went on. And he's just a regular guy, he's working, he will eventually go to law school and become a lawyer, I believe. He's got nothing to gain, really, by telling this outlandish and, frankly, embarrassing story. And there's some strange details in it that are just really interesting. The woman, we'll call them a woman, being on the saucer that has the sexual encounter with him, she screams like an animal, so that this, this inhuman, animalistic noise emanates from her and greatly disturbs him. And he's sort of you know, aroused, sort of despite himself, and is literally forced into this act. And it's troubling, and it's awkward, and it's strange, and like I said, there's nothing, there's no upside to sharing this with people. But he does share it. Villas Boas essentially claimed he was sexually assaulted by a feral space woman. He would say that before they left, this woman rubbed her belly and pointed up towards the stars. He understood this to mean that she was taking what would be their baby back to where she'd come from. Villas Boas' story made it to the U.S. before Betty and Barney Hill's experience, but it seems very unlikely that either Betty or Barney would have known of it. Aaron mentioned APRO before and does again here. It's an acronym for the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, a UFO research group at the time. APRO published the story in their newsletter in the late 1950s, and I think their book Flying Saucer Occupants came out in the late 50s or early 60s, and it's in this book, Flying Saucer Occupants, which was published in a you know pocketbook paperback format that was on all the newsstands. That's where most people read about the story. So, as far as the case being well-known, it would have been well-known to people who read UFO books. It would not have been well-known to the general public or people driving down the road in New Hampshire in the mid-60s, I wouldn't think. For Betty and Barney, though, their UFO sighting was different. It started with a light in the sky and reached a climax when they encountered a spaceship near Indian Head. That story ended when they arrived home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, at least two hours later than they'd expected. They had continuous memory of these events. That is, there was no perceivable gap between the events and Betty and Barney's ability to recall them. In the days following the encounter, Betty had unusually vivid dreams about being aboard a spaceship, but neither she nor Barney actually remembered anything. The memory of these events only emerged two years later. During the first half of 1964, the Hills made the hour-long drive to the Boston office of Dr. Benjamin Simon. During separate hypnosis sessions with Dr. Simon, Betty and Barney told very similar stories about being brought aboard an alien spacecraft. So what exactly happened to Barney and Betty Hill during those two missing hours? After Betty and Barney turned off into the woods, they found themselves in a sort of trance. They remember being escorted through the woods to where the UFO waited. Betty said Barney was totally out of it and provided no resistance. Betty struggled, but was no match for the beings. They were brought up a ramp and into the ship. Barney, from a May 1966 radio interview. I was 
was carried past one door into another door, and there was this room with a pie shape, uh, as I described it, much like a pie, uh, with the point of the pie cut off. And it was just one table that was very small for my uh, body. I'm about five foot eight. Where I I lie down, I I, play, I I got onto the table myself, <clears throat> and I am continually hearing this voice that is telling me that no harm is going to come to me. It's only a matter of a few uh, uh, tests that are going to be conducted. Just as some of more or less. Remain calm that it uh, will soon be over with and I'll be about my business uh, with no damage done. The next several clips feature Betty, recorded decades later in the 1980s and 90s. So, went on board the craft and I went into an unlighted corridor. And then I was taken into the first room. Bonnie was taken into the second room. And at this point, for purposes of identification. I now call him the leader, but under hypnosis, I always refer to him as the one who speaks English. And so he was in the room, and then the examiner came in, and there were nine others who stayed in the corridor. I was taken into this first room, and uh, it was quite bare. There was a small table, there was a stool, and then the wall, the door, there were doors in the wall that would slide back and forth. And they put me on a stool, checked my eyes, ears, nose, throat, my feet, my hands. And the leader would look at my skin, and then the examiner, and they could have, took turns looking at my skin, and they were, all this time, they're carrying on this conversation, very excitedly, in their own language, which I had never heard before. Then they, said, put me on the table and said they wanted to check my nervous system and they used some special kind of equipment to do this. UFO researcher and Betty Hill's niece, Kathleen Martin. They were very interested in every opening in her body and to looking at everything. They were especially interested in her teeth, their joints, they removed their shoes. They moved their joints, their fingers, their toes, their arms, their legs, and then they appeared to have done neurological uh, testing on Betty and Barney as well. Betty stated that they had placed a stylus kind of thing on her back. Betty continues the story from the transcript of her March 14, 1964 hypnosis session, as read by an actress. So I'm sitting on the stool and there's this little bracket and my head is resting against the bracket and the examiner opens my eyes and he looks in them with a light and he opens my mouth and he looks at my throat and my teeth and he looks in my ears and then he turns my head and he looks in this ear. And then he takes out like a swab or a Q-tip. I guess it is like like they use on babies. And he cleaned out and he puts it in my left ear. And then he puts this on another piece of material. And the leader takes it and he rolls it up and he puts it in the top drawer too. Oh, then, then he feels my hair and the, the back of my neck. And then they take a couple strands of my hair and they pull it out. 
and he gives this to the leader, and he wraps that all up, and he puts that in the top drawer. And then he takes something that may be like scissors. I don't know what it is, and they cut a piece of my hair here. He starts feeling behind my ears and under my chin and down my neck and through my shoulders around my uh, collarbone. And then they take off my shoes and they look at my feet and they look at my hands. Betty was taken to this table where they removed her dress. They did not know how to undo a zipper and so they ended up tearing the top of Betty's dress. And then she showed them how to unzip that zipper. The dress fell into a pile on the floor and her slip was pulled up. And then the final test was they tried to insert a needle-like instrument in my navel, which they said was a pregnancy test, but it caused a great deal of pain. So they stopped doing this. And this was in 1961. And at that time, we didn't have any kind of testing like this. It was later we developed it. She's talking about amniocentesis, a test used with pregnant women that can determine the gender of a fetus, as well as any possible infections or chromosomal abnormalities. It was under development in 1961, but wasn't presented to the public until 1965. Betty, of course, was not pregnant. It caused so much pain to Betty that she screamed in agony and she writhed. The leader removed her pain by doing something up around her head. And generally the one that she called the leader that we now call the escort, who is with experiencers time and time again when they are taken, uh, is the one who does most of the communication is the one who establishes a relationship with that human subject and also who removes any pain or any anxiety or fear that the subject is experiencing. Dr. Simon had to end that session early due to the degree of trauma that Betty was experiencing. In the next session that he came to, The physician had left the room. He had gone to do Barney's examination. Betty didn't know that at the time, but that's what was taking place in the next room over. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Betty recounted being given a kind of physical examination, including a painful procedure involving a needle being inserted in her navel. When the exam was completed, the being that she called the physician left the room. Though she didn't know it at the time, he'd gone to see Barney. From the 1966 radio interview. I offered no resistance, no... I wasn't concerned about Betty's whereabouts. Mm-hmm. I might feel a little guilty as a father, a husband yeah. uh, to not be concerned about my wife. But this is such a terrifying situation that I was only concerned about myself and I was being assured that I wasn't going to be harmed. Mm-hmm. So that I was placed on this table where uh, my trousers were removed and uh, my uh, shirt was pulled up toward my head which would have made my back, my under shirt was pulled up along with it, where my back would have been bare. Mm-hmm. And I was turned over on my back and my stomach, as well as uh, uh, while uh, I could feel uh, what I call a finger going up and down the spinal column. With this examination, uh, I remembered a tug at my teeth and this is the way I described it. And also, while in this position of being examined, I opened my eyes again pleadingly because I could hear a kind of noise as if people or someone was talking. I opened my eyes and I looked and I saw these three short men. And this is when I got a good look at the face. I immediately closed my eyes because what I saw was terrifying by our standards. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they were terrifying. Well, how would you describe what you saw? I saw this kind of grayish color. And this is interesting because most people, they know, when you saw the little green men, and they were not green men, mm-hmm. so they were a grayish metallic kind of gray in color. And I might also say that I'm quite sure they were not wearing a mask, or rather any kind of apparatus over the head for breathing purposes, mm-hmm. because I could see what would have been a mouth, a thin line without a lip muscle, that when parting, when open, there was a membrane inside that fluttered, really right at the end of the mouth itself. And this fluttered, and this seemed to be a way that they communicated with one another, with a very peculiar kind of mumbling, humming sound. This is from the transcript of Barney's February 29th session, as read by an actor. I was lying on a table and my fly was open and I thought, are they putting a cup around my private parts? And then it stopped and I thought, how funny, 
I thought, how funny. If I keep real quiet and real still, I won't be harmed and it will be over. And I will just stay here and pretend that I am anywhere and think of God and think of Jesus and think I am not afraid. They also examined Barney's mouth and found something that surprised them. They rushed to Betty's room to get more information. They came running into the room, some of them, and they had dentures in their hands. Well, I guess when they checked Barney's mouth, they noticed that his teeth were removable, but Betty's were not. So they were very curious about what was going on, and they tried to pull Betty's teeth out, but she explained that some humans lose their teeth. This led to a very confusing exchange between Betty and the leader. Again, from Betty's hypnosis session on March 14th. And the leader says, does this happen to many people? And he was very, uh, he acted as if he didn't believe me. And I said, well, yes, it happens to almost everyone as they get older. And he said, well, what's older? And I said, old age. So he said, what's old age? And I said, well, it varies, but as a person gets older, there are changes in him, particularly physically. He sort of begins to break down with old age. And so he said, well, what is age? It was very apparent that I was using words that although he spoke English, his knowledge or the meanings of most of our words were foreign to him. And I just couldn't seem to find the right words to make him understand. So then he said, diet, what's diet? So I'm saying, well, that's the foods we eat. And so I'm trying to tell him about the foods. And I said, vegetables. And he says, what's vegetables? So I was tell, explaining, we have many of them. Uh, I'll tell you about squash. So I said, squash is yellow. And he said, what's yellow? You know? So I look all around and there's nothing yellow. So we didn't get along too well. And I wasn't able to explain in words that he would understand what I was saying. Betty eventually suggested that maybe she could set up a meeting with people who would be better able to answer his questions. But the leader didn't seem to have the authority to make that kind of decision. After her physical exam was completed, Betty had apparently grown comfortable enough to initiate a conversation with the leader. This is Betty talking with Dennis McCarthy, who was the interviewer for WICH in 1979. All right, the leader, uh, someone suggested we should call him the interpreter because he was the only one who spoke English. And he did speak with an accent, uh, sort of a uh, very English, England English type accent. The others did not speak English, but they had their own language in which they communicated with each other. Did you get a chance to ask them where they came from or why they were here? Yes, I asked. That was the one question I asked. I asked Leah two questions. Give me a souvenir to take back and prove this has happened, which he gave me a book and then later took it back on the basis that we were not going to need this. It was like a large, very thin, hard what she called a book, but is more like what we think of as a tablet today. There were symbols embedded 
In this, there were, I believe it was five rows of symbols. We'll get back to these symbols later in the episode. Barney's examination, meanwhile, had ended. From Betty's hypnosis session on March 14th, 1964. And then Barney's coming. They're bringing Barney out. I hear the the men out in the corridor. And I said, Barney's coming. And he said, yes, you can go back to the car now. And I got the book. And Barney's coming out. And Barney's eyes are still shut. Good heavens. <laughs> He's missed an awful lot. I wonder if he made him keep his eyes shut or if he's scared. Uh, so now it's time to go back to the car, and the leader said, Come on, we'll walk back to the car with you. Barney, again, isn't engaging with their abductors. I did not carry on a conversation with these creatures, and at best, that I could describe, I was treated uh, very indifferent. The best uh, that I can say is much like as if we found wild game in the wood uh, and we decided to capture it with uh, the intentions of not harming it, but just to uh, look at it and observe it, see what it's like, and then release it. Uh, there was complete indifference to, uh, to uh, me as an intellectual equal to them. I'm all ready to go down the ramp when some of the other men, not not the leader, but some of the other men are talking. I don't know what they're saying, but they're very excited. And the leader is saying, he's, he's saying something, and they're quite, they're, They're undecided about something. And then, oh, Jolita comes over and takes my book. And I said, oh, I'm furious. I said, you promised me I could have the book. You gave me a word I could have it. And he said, I know it. He said, but the others object. They don't want you to have it. And I said, but this is my proof. If you take the book away from me, I'll have no proof that this has happened. And he said, that's the whole point. They don't want you to know it's happened. They want you to forget all about it. And that's why I'm taking the book. The idea that she might not remember this experience worried Betty. She became concerned that she wouldn't encounter these aliens again. From the 1987 presentation. And I said, I need to know if you're going to come back because I'll need to know where to meet you. And he said, if we decide to come back, we'll let you know. And I said, well, I don't live around here. He said, we'll find you. <laughs> so then he's walking back to the car and with me. And he said, well, I'm going to leave you here. But now go down by your car and stay by your car 
and watch us leave. If you stay that distance away, you'll be safe. You won't be injured in any way. So I went back to the car and I picked up my dog, who's cowering on the front seat. Barney got out. I leaned against the fender of the car and I saw this craft become surrounded by the swirling, fiery orange mass that was going around and around and around. And it lifted up, went up, <clears throat> dipped down, and went up again, and was gone. And I'm saying to the dog, you know, you may be the only dog in the world who's seen this. <laughs> Under hypnosis, Betty would say that she was really delighted about the whole thing and was determined not to forget the experience. Barney was less enthusiastic. Betty and Barney believed that this abduction experience happened between the two times that they heard the buzzing noise from the rear of their car while driving south away from Indian Head tourist area. If they are right about this, the next thing that happened was that they gained real consciousness on Route 3 near Ashland, New Hampshire, about 30 miles south of Indian Head. From there, they would drive to Concord to look for coffee and then continue their journey to Portsmouth. This then gave a framework to explain the missing time. Under hypnosis, Betty remembered being shown two objects on the spaceship. One of these objects the leader had given her and then taken back, a book with alien symbols. I have no idea what the contents were. I got a good look at the outside of the book and a few of the pages. It was not an ordinary book like we have. I don't know what the substance was it was made out of, but the pages were extremely thin and Uh, very, very smooth, almost like they were coated with a plastic. The symbols went up and down rather than across, and it was a very simplified script. Nothing I'd ever seen before. In 2001, Kathleen Martin asked her aunt to recreate what she had seen in the book. I asked Betty to sketch the symbols that she remembered observing on the craft. It took her a couple of weeks uh, for her memory to return, but she did sketch them. These symbols were then seen by Dr. Don Dondery, a retired associate professor at McGill University, who has done research on alien abductions. We'll hear from Dr. Dondery later in this series. He had the idea to compare Betty's symbols to symbols recalled by other supposed abductees. These other symbols had been compiled for a study undertaken by Dr. Dondery, along with artist and UFO researcher Bud Hopkins and SUNY Brockport professor Stuart Appel. This study attempted to determine if the symbols recalled by these possible abductees were true memories of what they'd seen on alien spacecraft or just products of their imagination. Over time, Hopkins had asked purported abductees to draw the symbols they'd remembered seeing during their abduction experience. He had collected drawings from two dozen people, but how could they determine if they were quote-unquote real and not imagined? Don Dondery wrote about this study in his book, UFOs, ETs, and Alien Abductions. 
This section is read by an actor. Appel hypnotized 24 non-abducted control subjects and asked them under hypnosis to imagine being taken aboard a UFO. When they regained normal consciousness after the hypnosis, Appel asked them to draw any symbols they remembered seeing inside the craft during their hypnotically suggested abduction. If the symbols by Hopkins abductees match the symbols remembered by Appel's hypnotized imaginary abductees, that would suggest the whole alien abduction experience was also imaginary. Each symbol from both groups was put on a card. Nothing on the cards identified the source of each symbol. The cards were mixed together, and a group of undergraduate students then evaluated the symbols based on criteria they were given. Despite not knowing the origins of the individual cards, they scored the abductee symbols differently than the faker symbols. In other words, in going through the evaluation process, they could tell the difference. This seemed to suggest that the abductees might have actually seen alien symbols. Still, Dondery stresses that this symbol evidence is consistent with, but not sufficient proof of the conclusion that the abduction experiences were real. As for the symbols that Betty drew... Dr. Dondery saw the symbols. He read the book. And he compared those symbols to the symbols that he and Dr. Appel had used in the academic study. And what they discovered was that Betty's symbols were very, very much like the symbols of the abductees that Bud Hopkins had been working with dating back to the mid-1970s. So this was an important piece of information, some verification. I've looked at the symbols myself, and to my eye, they seem like the kinds of things anyone might make up for a basic cipher. Geometric shapes, lines, dots, and so on. Nothing as complicated as Egyptian hieroglyphics, for instance. To make things even less clear, the abductee symbols that I saw from the study done by Dondery, Hopkins, and Appel didn't seem to look very much like each other. Betty's symbols looked a bit like some, and not at all like others. This so-called evidence seems to be inconclusive at best. In fact, the alien symbols seem like almost an afterthought when you talk to people about the Hill case. The other object that Betty remembered, though, is definitely not an afterthought. The star map received plenty of attention and launched a furious debate. Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Betty Hill was portrayed by Gina Rakicki. Barney Hill was portrayed by Jason Williams. Special thanks to the Milne Special Collections and Archives at the University of New Hampshire, John Horrigan, WICH 1310 AM in Norwich, Connecticut, John White and David O'Leary, the executive producer of the History Channel's dramatic series, Project Blue Book. Learn more about the show over at GrimAndMild.com. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.